0: Welcome to The Compliance Files, brought to you by Compliance Institute. The Compliance Files is a unique podcast series, giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere.
1: Hello and welcome to the Compliance Files podcast of the Compliance Institute. Compliance Files is a unique podcast series giving you access to industry insights and key perspectives on how the evolving regulatory landscape is driving change, bringing challenge and opportunity for compliance professionals everywhere. I am Anya Hickey, Council Director and member of the Funds Working Group at Compliance Institute and Director in Compliance Advisory with BNY Mellon. It is a great pleasure for me to host this podcast. A broad consensus has emerged in how to define culture and conduct. Culture is commonly viewed as the values, attitudes and assumptions manifested by a company in its interactions with stakeholders, while conduct is seen as the way in which these characteristics reveal themselves in behaviour. Agreeing what good looks like, particularly with respect to culture, has proved more challenging. I'm delighted to have with me today Mark Satterthwaite, Chief Compliance Officer, and Paul Quinlan, EMEA Head of Conduct Risk at Citibank Europe. Mark is Chief Compliance Officer of Citibank Europe PLC and Head of ICRM Independent Compliance Risk Management, Europe Cluster, with responsibility for 23 European countries. Paul is Head of Conduct Risk ICRM in EMEA for Citi. Prior to joining Citi, Paul served as Head of Governance for TD Securities here in Dublin, with responsibility for establishing and implementing the Conduct Risk Management Framework. Welcome Mark and Paul to this podcast on conduct and culture and before we kick off our discussion to first note Mark and Paul that any comments and insights provided here are our own individual thoughts based on experiences and our careers to date. So to kick off interested to know Mark um, and Paul what do you understand by culture?
2: So the way I think about it is that values behaviors are demonstrated by the employees Uh, the firms obviously we work for work for but these are really evidenced by the decisions and actions and choices we collectively take individually and as a group. Those working habits we practice in the ways in which we invest resources and rewards, um, and also how the tone um, of leadership is also set. I guess, simply put, the culture uh, drives a firm's behaviors, and obviously that therefore impacts the interaction with uh, our clients and also you know the markets that we also operate in, and um, and that you can reflect on uh, that impact. Really, I think you can see the differences where a firm or a company promotes uh, an ultra-competitiveness uh, in its actions, and that can be focused on revenue generation. Revenue generation in itself is a good thing, but where it goes too far, it will impact the employee behaviors on conduct and how they then interact in those two ways I just described. Um, the way we've Used and try to describe this internally is almost um like an iceberg what you can see is the ten percent above the water surface in terms of enforcement actions and fines um but actually the cultural uh, activity underneath that uh, watershed is actually what you really want to try and capture when you try to determine whether that, you know a culture is uh, good or bad and I think also when we always when we have these conversations we always focus on the financial industry obviously but i would also you know point out this isn't unique to this industry we've seen similar uh cultural issues um for example in the motor industry particularly you know with the emission scandals in germany and volkswagen mercedes etc where the cultural norm shifted and it created the wrong activities the atheist, um, employees but paul i don't know if you want to add anything
0: to so that. No, no, I I completely agree. I think, you know, it's the values and behaviors really um that an organization holds true to themselves. I think they get reflected in how what the organization but its its staff it, um, interacts and deal with its customers and clients. I think that's where you really see the culture actually come through the organization in terms of the tangible output. Um really having a customer client driven client-centric view, um, and, and culture really does help, I suppose, drive positive cultural norms that an organization wants. And using Mark's example there of, uh, I suppose, ultra-competitive, ultra-profit-driven environment, yes, we all have shareholders. We all have to make sure that we do make a profit and keep the organization going. But I think having a culture whereby you put the customer and client force actually is beneficial for your strategy and leads to that positive culture.
1: Thank you both. And a very useful visual there in terms of the iceberg. What would you say is the the difference between conduct and culture?
0: Um, I suppose for me personally, I think culture informs and is one of the primary drivers how an organization, how us as employees conduct our activities. I think conduct is the manner in which a person behaves, especially in a Particular situation, and then just to add to that, we'd say conduct risk is the impact that that behaviour has on customers, clients, uh, and market integrity. And um, you know, in terms of the other differences, I would say culture is built in many components such as recruiting practices, training, comms, awareness, go to the top, your strategic I think um, if you don't get that right, and we don't embed positive activities within that. It will reflect our conduct and it will bubble up in terms of how we are treating customers, and clients, the outcomes that they're experiencing. Um, and the example I like to use is my, uh, I suppose my beloved Manchester United. Um, if it, it's, it's similar to, I would say the banking industry as an example. So 10 years ago, Alex Ferguson left. There was a fantastic culture before that. The conduct, which was the outcome on the pitch was all very positive. He leads, and very quickly you see culture diminishes, and the conduct the output on the pitch completely diminishes. Similar with banking industry, if you have a positive culture, it will lead to positive performance and positive output. And I think it's a very slow process. Get that right, but it can fade very, very quickly. Uh, and that's why we need to be cognizant and on top of this at all times in measuring it and identifying it and, <clears throat> excuse me, and ensuring that we have buy-in from both Middle management, senior management from the ground up and from the top down. that's sure where those aging regulators.
2: Yeah, it's a sort of reflection on it can vary in terms of those expectations uh, geographically. I know we're having uh, this podcast in Ireland, but when you start to try and measure this type of activity or the culture of a firm, you do see some uh, differences uh, from one location to another. So you've got to be a bit mindful sometimes of different segments in terms of. Uh, uh, that risk profiling and the cultural environment in which we, which we operate. Um, so just a, it's just like word of caution when we're doing comparisons from one location to it.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you both. It's not always easy to distinguish the two. And as a fellow United supporter, uh, I get that uh, example for sure. <laughs> um, so I guess just moving on. So why would you say conduct and culture are important? I'll uh, be touched on it a little already in, in some of our answers. but
2: Yeah, maybe I'll turn to deal. That. And Actually, I think Paul uh, covered this to some extent in the earlier question. Um, it's really how we expect ourselves and individuals uh, to operate in those markets. I mean, obviously, we both work in Siki Bank, so we're uh, actively participating in trading, sales, etc., banking origination, loans. How we interacting in those uh, wholesale markets is uh, an important factor. And also, as we mentioned earlier, it's our treatment of clients as well. If we had a good standing both in the markets so and we're treating our uh, clients fairly, uh, um I do think it you know it's it's that beneficial impact to the overall strategy of the firm. you know, so that's why I think it's important. It's not it's not refined, uh, you know or, or the recommends from regulators, obviously, get reputational risk from that that's not really you know the driver behind this though it's the it's the positive impact to delivering on the strategy in those two aspects that Paul uh, mentioned um I think obviously the issues become increasingly more important over the years and uh, not just here in Ireland but globally we see the push you know maybe from 12 13 14 years ago but it's now a global uh, focus on on conduct and and also making sure that from the boards down, the cultures in firms um, are appropriate for the you know the stature of the firm and the complexity of the uh, operations
0: as well. Just echo everything you said. I think if we have the right culture, it's going to deliver long-term tangible value for the organization, first and foremost, for our shareholders. Um, if we have a positive culture, we're going to recruit the right staff, the most talented staff, um, and they are obviously going to lead to the best output for the firm. So I think it's just got to was suppose, uh, a, a mushroom effect. I think we get it right with our culture. I think it has a lot of knock-on effects and it will lead to how we execute and implement our strategy.
1: Thank you. Yeah certainly huge benefits to, to getting conduct and culture right there. And How would you say conduct complements regulation?
0: Um, I, I think it really does in the sense that you can't codify everything and regulation only goes so far. So if you have good behaviours and good conduct practices, you're going to, by default, most of the time, um, meet your regulatory requirements. If you're treating customers fairly, if you're behaving with integrity in the market, by default, you're going to take lot, a lot of the boxes when it comes to regulatory requirements. Um, I think regulatory requirements, you need to augment those with conduct to culture principles. There is always, I suppose, an underlying risk of some level of regulatory error or, you know, whether usually inadvertent. Um, so having such principles in place helps support and mitigate the impact of such errors on customers and clients. The other thing about this conduct risk and culture generally is focused on fair treatment of customers and clients and maintaining market integrity. Where there is conduct issues or there is any violations or breaches, one of, by one of those two points, you're going to likely have a regulatory issue. And similarly, if you have a regulatory issue, you should be considering the, downstream impact of that on your customers and clients. So I think they go hand in hand and they, they should complement each other. Perk?
2: Yeah, look, you know, I, 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 totally agree. Um, the one thing I, I, I would say though, is the, the focus on regulators is continuing to evolve, And um, there's new areas of conduct, which I think we need to focus on like ESG and um, I would probably point to maybe with the FCA as well, with their customer duty actor, which came out, I think, last year, you know, with the four outcomes there. So it, it's it's a constant um, benchmarking as well to the external expectations of regulators. So you, you can't, it's not a static program inside the firm. We're having to adjust and focus in different areas that we may not have considered from a, a conduct perspective before. So we've got to keep alive to that, I think.
1: Thank you. I guess if we, if we turn now to consider conduct and culture in financial services, what does good look like and, and how can financial services firms instill good culture and conduct?
0: I, I think it's a mixture of the points we touched on already. Um, you know, if it takes strategic planning, you need to consider conduct and culture as part of your strategy. Um, and I don't mean that in a tick-the-box kind of way, I mean, when we're sitting down start of the year or the end of the previous year and we're setting our strategy for the coming year, you need to consider, you know, how are we going to achieve that from a conduct and conduct risk standpoint? How are we going to deliver the outcomes, the good outcomes for our customers and clients? And how are we going to achieve that through our behaviors, through our practices, through our own structures? Um, and if those aren't appropriate to delivering those outcomes, then I think we have to pivot and reevaluate, well, what do we need to change structurally or what do we need to change in terms of our strategy? To support that. Um, The other area I think is probably obvious is MI governance and reporting. Condit risk MI is a continuous evolution um, and culture MI, and it's something that the industry is, I think, has evolved a lot on in the last two to three years. Um, And it's continuing to evolve. The governance and oversight around that is very important. Obviously, I would say, you know. It has to feed up to the board. Board are responsible for the organisation how we conduct ourselves and and the culture within. So they need to get the right reporting on that and at the right level, um, and that has to come through the executive management. I think accountability and responsibility, particularly as CEO comes into the equation, becomes more and more important. So having that set out clearly um, in terms of you know senior management, senior executive function accountability, but middle management accountability as well. Because that's where an area where it's going to be key in terms of implementing culture and good conduct behaviors. Um, Employee performance assessment is another area that comes to mind in terms of you want to reward good behaviors. You know, we don't want, I suppose, we don't want to ignore negative behaviors that, albeit they might lead to high performing employee in terms of revenue generation. We want that reflected in their performance assessment that A, they either have good behavior or B, behavior is not so good and needs to prove, that needs to be reflected. And then, as I said already, tone from the top and, and general comms uh, and training is, is vitally important. You know, I suppose you can't reinforce that message enough in terms of the behaviors that we want to see and the culture that we want to live and breed. Um, and obviously, customer and client outcomes, we need to measure those, we need to be tangible in are we delivering our, cust- our customers and clients satisfied with the service we're providing? What are the complaints or any issues that they have? And what are we doing to address those underlying complaints?
2: I think the tone from the middle is the area, you know, some firms forget to focus on. They will have the board strategy, the happy communications. But if your boss, your line boss, your line manager isn't living those values, it dilutes uh, what you're trying to achieve as part of that uh, cultural shift of strategy. It's absolutely vital to get those middle managers on board and actually walking the walk as well. Right? Otherwise, it just doesn't permeate through the organisation. Um, I think uh, the other the other area where uh, Paul you mentioned, but I think it's sometimes difficult for firms to to be able to uh, demonstrate um, positive behaviour and and calling it out in a in a good way to celebrate that across the organisation. Uh, I think we're very good at I see band beheaded, and and, uh, you know, dealing with that. But uh, the actual positive reinforcement um, is, a, I think, sometimes where uh, we struggle with. And I think there's more we could be doing there, you know, to uh, shine a light on that rather than just when
0: people have breached policies and uh, the regulations, et cetera. Yeah, actually, sorry, just to go on that point, like, I couldn't agree more. I think re-emphasizing it, actually, you know, communicating what those positive behaviors are, sometimes like happening in a silo. And it's very much your boss, you know, congratulates she says well done. Um, but we need to actually promote those behaviors more Let's show the example of this is what good actually looks like um, and re-emphasize that across the organization.
1: Mm-hmm. Great advice, Sarah. Thank you. I guess I, I know you, you just referenced Seer there and, and we spoke um, a little earlier in terms of how conduct complements regulation. Um, I don't know if you, you might be happy to elaborate a little in terms of how SEER might support uh culture and conduct and, and how you see that landing.
0: Yeah, I I suppose for this has gone my own experience when I was running the SMCR program in the UK. Um mm-hmm. it made senior executives more focused on the good behaviors because of the potential repercussions. You know, you stick mm-hmm. in the carrot. Um I think this was the stake in that state in in that case whereby It introduced an element of fear, which is not what you want, but it ultimately drove to right behaviors and that fear dissipated over time because governance structures were right, the decision-making was right, and then the oversight of conduct behaviors and regulations was in place. So there is a word of caution I would uh, put in place when it comes to fear, and that is it does bring an element of trepidation, a little bit of, I suppose, anxiousness and fear. It's natural with new regulations, especially <laughs> if they have an individual impact on you. Um, but it ultimately drove the right behaviours once that understanding, once I suppose, comfort with the regulator and the regulator's approach was in place. Um, it, it really reinforced those behaviours.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've been subject to similar regimes in other jurisdictions in Asia, and you could see that uh, cultural shift quite rapidly when the regulations came in. I'm not suggesting. Senior management weren't taking uh, you know culture and conduct seriously beforehand, but they were definitely more focused on it. Uh, you know, when they're individually responsible for their business lines and their functional areas, uh, it was quite interesting to see. Uh, but the positive benefit, I think, was we've already starting to see the same uh, happening in Ireland.
1: Super, thanks for that. What What are the challenges faced by firms when they're embarking on implementing cultural change? Do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's um, it's it's we shouldn't think of it in the way I'm a, I'm probably going to answer the question, which just sounds like very project, uh, yeah, projectual. But I think we have to understand ourselves as we are today. You know, effectively what has to be changed, um, and and of course, you know, why that is the case, but also we have the the north star where we're trying to get to. You know, the desired outcome at the end of that that uh, journey. I think we need to be very Clear on all those three elements, uh, because without any each of them individually, um, I think you you would fail. And I've, I've I've seen initiatives in the past where they were missing an element of that, and therefore didn't get to where they wanted to be as the uh, uh, the end goal, as it were. Obviously, as usual, with these things. You, I mean, Paul's already touched on measurement. Um, I think that can be tricky in a larger organization. Uh, you need consistent uh, metrics to measure. And um, which are not always available globally or you know regionally, whatever, and they course they may not apply to every single part of the business or function as well in the same way, so therefore, measurement of one group to another becomes difficult if you haven't got a uniform set of metrics uh so you have to start from a baseline where you have that, you gradually over time um i think uh, a build on it as well um I think um as uh we we talked about um to so the last question. You need to, with that dimension of trying to push throughout the organization, if you like, um, it's that middle management again. Get them on side. Uh, get them to be the advocates of what you're trying to do uh, is absolutely vital. So it's not just coming from the CEO. It's not just coming from training sessions, from compliance. Um, it's really important to get those middle management in their meetings to assess, you know, requirements of uh, behavior that you'd expect to see uh in a firm with good culture um it's getting them on board first and there's various different ways i think you know you can do that with obviously workshops and so they understand the benefits to themselves their teams and their company as well as obviously their clients and the markets as well but insert it's it's not something you can just do for an hour you know once a year and then everything's fine it's something and continue uh reinforced um through things like appraisals processes as well you know Make sure that they also see um, and accountable for their actions as well. Whether it's in a sea regime or not, I think you'd still need to do that.
0: And to just add to that, I suppose on on my side, I think Mark told really it's it's time and patience. You know, cultural change doesn't happen for now. I don't know we gave the Manchester United example; it's been ten years, um, but it takes a lot of time, um, and it takes a lot of commitments, and there has to be a lot of I suppose, scheduled, reinforcing messages, um, and really, really dedicating it to it. And, you know, as soon as you let it slip, as soon as you let it, you know, I suppose, become less of a priority, it starts stagnating, it starts to recede in terms of the progress that you're making. So I think it has to be always front and foremost mind, but also patience to actually deliver on it as well, because it wouldn't take time.
1: Thank you, vice Certainly not without its challenges, and, and, and quite a variety of stakeholders involved there too. I guess uh, sticking on the theme of challenges, and, and I think we've we touched on this somewhat already. But when you you mentioned the likes of MI and 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 Marky, you mentioned metrics and consistency across those. How can financial services firms measure whether their culture culture are working and and are improving?
0: Yeah. I- there are just, there's many different uh, pieces of MI, I suppose. The obvious ones are, you know, if you take disciplinary actions, digging into those, you know, severity of issues within those, repeat offenders, concentration of issues in terms of employee populations, tenure of the employees or seniority, you know, digging into those to understand that, and um, where your open issues are, whether they're regulatory compliance identified or internal audit what are those, what are the severity of those, what's the downstream impact of those uh, on our customers and the clients. Self-ide um, issue identification rates, I think that's a, a big one. And it's something we're probably focusing more of in the industry at the moment. And it's, you know, it's a fine balance in that because you want individuals to be able to speak up um, and you want to make sure that they're not afraid to hold their hand and say, hey, you know, we have an issue here, want to make it known and not, and, everyone aware and so that we can address and the looking, continue to look internally. I suppose, employee surveys and voice of the employee, looking at the stats on that, looking at analysis, you know, where are we falling down, where are we doing well, um, behavioral analysis. I'm not going to say I'm an expert in behavioral analysis, but it's something that has come into the financial industry in, in recent years, and I think it's going to continue to become more prominent considering outside factors, so I suppose customer client surveys how do our customers see us um our complaint data and our complaint logs i think that's an invaluable piece of mi um, and digging into that to understand what are the pinch points that our customers and clients are facing where is it that they are seeing issues with our service and what are we doing to analyze those issues and address those and then i think consumer duty i think from a uk standpoint that's going to be come Big big thing over the next couple of years and measuring uh, customer tangibly, measuring customer and client outcomes. Um, it hasn't correlated its way into Ireland yet, but I do think and I would like to think that the benefits of the work that's going on in the UK we can leverage that in terms of our customer and client outcomes. So, I suppose all of those together tell a story. I, I would caveat that there is no one golden source of MI that will tell you what your culture. Is or how you're performing from a standpoint. I think you have to overlay all those quantitative elements with qualitative. Or what do you see on the ground? What do your eyes tell you? What do your ears tell you in terms of all of that marrying together?
2: Yeah, it's interesting in terms of that qualitative overlay. I was going to mention you can take the metrics, so you know, things like voice of the employee, voice of the customer, etc. But what, what I found now is with some of the changes sitting on some sort of the metrical driven data that we now have internally, there's free text form for employees, for example, to put their comments into the system. So it's not just, how do I rate my manager kind of question? And then, you know, we put the scale in. There's an ability there to put the narrative in. Um, and when you read those narratives, actually that's where you glean more more information is that deep dive through in terms of the qualitative elements of the of those surveys as you know we have a section on kind of ethics and culture so it, I find that the most in, in, informative and picking up my point uh which I keep banging on around in terms of that middle management piece that that's an area where you can go in and do a bit more of a deep dive in terms of meeting those managers understanding how they manage their teams uh to really try and understand how how it actually operates on the ground across the the organization. Certainly, um, in a couple of uh, projects I've been involved in before, that was the most informative. Uh, Understanding how that process works was absolutely crucial to uh, get uh,
0: cultural change to happen. One other thing that comes to mind is when we're thinking about metrics and measurement of content and culture, we always have to be cautious just on the off chance, it drives the wrong behaviours, um, you know, because if we're constantly promoting here our disciplinary actions, here are, are open issues, and it's taking a negative way rather than the positive side of, say, we know there were issues, we can go and address it if it's taken in the negative, that we have all these issues, it can lead potentially to individuals actually keeping their head down and not opening up on what those issues are. So it's, it is really a fine balance of balancing negative news story that comes with those issues and, and behaviours, but also the positives in the sense that, well, we now know that we can go remediate.
1: Thank you. Very useful to be able to measure measure these things as they progress and actually see if they are improving. Great tips and advice there. Thank you. And I, I suppose interesting that the direction of travel of regulation, we mentioned whistleblowing, uh, in addition to see are very closely related to to that conduct and culture piece. Just moving on to the, the subject of accountability and where should culture sit within the governance structure of financial services firms? Probably yeah. what the role of the board is there.
2: Yeah, I think that uh, Paul kind of touched on this earlier. So, yeah, it has to come from the board, uh, you know, at the top of the organization. Uh, and obviously, again, on a regular basis, I mean, it, it, it's a journey, it's a, it's a constant refresh, as we've talked about already. Uh, so that uh, discussion point of the board needs to be regular. It can't be just like a, a once, once a year or a couple of metrics that feed through in some sort, some sort of report from the executive. But of course, um, the board isn't running the company day to day. That is the executive or whatever the structure may be firm. So, you know, that executive level has to take the responsibility to, you know, drive uh, those programs as we discussed. Um, and there has to be that loop back. As mentioned on a regular basis from that executive program whatever it may be in the show, back up to the board so that you've got that check and challenge uh, from the board to make sure the program is you know hitting the right marks but also if there are issues like paul said it, you know that it, it's brought up to the board for discussion um, and remediation and hopefully if you get your metrics and measure them correct you can target what that might look like. It could be a particular country, it could be a particular area or a function where the metrics are indicating something abnormal. Uh so it's also you need to have a a history of the data as well, almost, uh, to see what abnormal would be, as opposed to uh, oh, that, you know, two two people in, in a particular location have had more breaches, et cetera, could be important, may not be. It's uh, you need to do it as a comparison, I think, as well. And that needs to feed through in terms of that loop uh, from the executive up to the board. I think
0: you've hit the mark and all that. I really do think it, it starts with the board um, and it cascades down. But to your right, it has to feed back up. It has to feed back up in terms of metrics, both quantitative and that qualitative overlay to give the board a sense of do we need to take any specific actions? Do we need to pivot in terms of what we're doing with cultural change? I think they need to be able to see the whole picture. Um, Obviously in the way really, they can't be in the in the detail, but they need to see that overall picture in order to get comfort. Yeah. And we are delivering the upon the conduct that we and, and cultural I suppose cultural vision that we have for the organization, or if we're not, what do we need to do to change? And I think as a
2: the larger the organization, then it's sometimes a, a challenge in terms of having that to dedicate time. Uh, to, to go through and do that analysis, et cetera, like I mentioned earlier. So certainly what we have started to see, I think it's fair in the industry, it's more broad, and maybe just that uh, at City is you know, a dedicated uh, working group. Some committee uh, of, of the executive is focused on uh, conduct risk, is looking at those metrics, is driving uh, the consistency. We talked about uh, developing new ways of measuring uh, and putting in place let's call it remediation for want of a better phrase, where, we're, where we see issues and, you know, having conversations like this, where we're challenging ourselves on how we could do better, for example, a promotion of good conduct, as opposed to just a negative or it, it but you you, know, you need time and the right individuals around the table to be able to do that. And sometimes I think at the executive level, you just don't have that. So maybe you have a working group underneath feeding into the executive, maybe the way to go for the study for the large organizations.
1: Super thanks, Get, getting that governance framework offered actually really is is so very important. Returning back to the topic of regulation in the financial services sector, to what extent has the regulatory focus moved from conduct, conduct towards culture?
0: Um, I wouldn't say it's completely moved. I would say it's more expanded, if, if that makes sense. I think there is more of an appreciation now that it's culture that really is the underlying driver or one of the key underlying drivers uh, with regards to conduct and conduct risk. Um, and I think, you know, if you look through any of the enforcement notices over the last number of years from Central Bank of Ireland, they keep referring to risk culture and, and uh, culture of an organization, as well as obviously what the infractions were. But it's primarily culture plays one of the key drivers. So I think it's just more that appreciation, understanding that culture really is vital in determining the outcomes, but for us as organisations in how we're behaving, how we're executing our strategy, but also how we're delivering for our customers and the clients.
1: Rupert, and I guess that's staying on the topic of regulation for a moment. The pace of legislation and regulatory change uh, continues. How important is it that, a, uh, I suppose, a more holistic approach is applied why the compliance team to consider the spirit of legislative change and, and how it impacts firms and and what role is culture to play in all of that?
2: Uh, thanks, Roger. This is where what, what one of my uh, pet subjects. So thank you,
1: straight. <laughs>
2: um, the challenge of regulation, just the sheer volume of it um, and the pace of change. Um, how do you ensure you know compliance with that? Well, I think culture's got a key element here, you know, to play. To put it into some sort of perspective, what I've just said, um, in the inventories that we manage, uh, you know, for city across Europe, um, we've got 1,300 regulatory requirements in our rec- regulatory database, and it's roughly about nearly 200 checkies a month. And that's before you add in things like DSCO letters and guidance notes, et cetera. And these are the, you know, the regulations, the rules, et cetera.
1: scary when you count them up like that.
2: It is, especially when you consider some of the size of them. You know, like Dora or Miko, at stature, they're they're not small. You know, very all-encompassing regulation, hundreds of pages of legislation, and then you've got technical standards and everything else that uh, go with them as well. It's very, very hard for everybody in the in those areas where they impact to be fully knowledgeable of every detail of those requirements. As much as we tried in terms of training, procedures, policies, testing, checking. Uh, you've got internal audit, obviously, as a third line. And um, this is where I think culture comes in, because even if you don't know the detail of the regulation, if you're trying to do the right thing, I think invariably be, you'll be lining up in a good place, um, either in terms of the act- actions you have taken, But if, you know, if it involves a regulation or a regulator um, in investigation, whatever, I think you're in a much better space than if you hadn't uh, got that good culture in the federal space. So I think it's super important with the complexity. Um, of that of that regulatory environment that we are increasingly having to operate and of course what i've just mentioned there these are just the eu regulations i'm not even including the extraterritorial uh, requirements from uh, other locations particularly for us from the us which adds a, a whole other level, level of uh, complexity to the situation so i think yeah as i said it's it, it's really super important to get that right uh, to give us any chance of being compliant
0: yeah, I, I suppose I don't have much to you, You've covered everything there, Mark. I, like the way I think about it personally is just usually a high correlation between how we're trying to be compliant with registry requirements and how our conduct risk and our culture is um, in terms of MI and measurement. Um, if one is falling or if one is below par, then the other is likely that we're not doing enough. Um, so if we do have a good, I suppose, conduct and cultural attitude, then we will by default be making every best effort that we have to, uh, to maintain rig compliance. And uh, as Mark said, the volume is slightly overwhelming when you put it in put it in those terms. So you can't you're not going to be an expert and we're not going to cover every single tiny element. But if we're attempting and endeavoring to do the right thing, then by default we we should take a lot of the boxes on what we don't know, essentially.
1: Right. Thanks, guys. Culture Clearly a really key component there in getting us a good way towards that, that uh, significant regulatory change management piece. And just finally, looking into the future, what do you think would be the main challenges with conduct and culture for financial services over the medium term now? Um,
2: I'll kick off and try not to repeat uh, areas that we've maybe covered already you know, to answer that question. I think looking at it from a slightly different uh, angle, with what we've been through with COVID and lockdowns, obviously firms are now having to adjust to remote and hybrid working. How, how is that uh, going to be managed from a firm's cultural perspective when staffing staff haven't actually met each other potentially? How do you ingrain the uh, entity's culture into remote workers? For example, it's possible. It's just maybe a little bit hard. I'm not saying it's impossible, but we've got to start thinking more around those areas. I think um, as uh, that is now, you know, the, this hybrid model seems to be the new norm. So we need to work out how that's going to work uh, in terms of distilling uh, those expectations throughout the organization. I think also there's a, sometimes a generational uh, shift in terms of expectations and thoughts in terms of how firms should, should operate and obviously that impacts the, the labor market practices as well more generally. So again, we need to think that think that through I, I touched on cultural norms before because i have i i'd seen how surveys at different locations um are completed in different ways which may give a, a a misleading impression you know really driven by what you know that 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 location so cultural norms may be slightly uh, different but doesn't necessarily indicate there's a, a conduct issue or a cultural issue in a particular location um if, if it scores in a different way to a country next door to it we did talk earlier, you know, we've touched on briefly ESG as well, um, as we start to think, you know, current and slightly further forward uh, in terms of areas we need to focus on. Um, I also mentioned uh, digital assets as well. Uh, that, that's coming, um, maybe a bit of a slow burn, but we've got to keep a very close eye on on that. Obviously, from a U.S. regulatory standpoint, uh, they are definitely some concern around digital assets, but we are definitely seeing, you know, potential digital euro, digital pound, Coming and plans to be put in place for that. How how is that going to work both in the retail and the wholesale markets? Maybe uh, different uh, answers to that that challenge. And actually, you, you asked us around here. I think that's the other one as we start to think f- forward uh, towards the end of this year, early next year. How do we embed um, the right controls and metrics through to our individuals who are going to be, you know, taking those PCF C roles uh, in the future to make sure that they can oversee and manage. You know the areas that
0: they're responsible for under the legislation. The only thing I'd add is I, I think it is going to be very interesting with the remote and hybrid working as I don't think it has fully normalised yet. You know it's we're still a year and I think if we give it another year we'll see a, an embedding of okay this is a structure that this is the three days you do or this is the five days you do or whatever, um, and how do we link that then to buy in with the company's mission and values? Yeah. I think. It's still a middle bit up in the air for a lot of firms, And I think it will take time for us to actually fully appreciate what, what does, what does that need? I think the, the other element, Mark, you touched was, um, ESG and climate change. I think there's two factors to that. There's the internal employee expectations that are beginning to become more prominent in terms of, I suppose, the greenness, for want of a better term of, of an organization. But then there's a macro side in terms of our clients and our customers and what they expect in terms of products, in terms of regulation. But actually, from regulation coming in around this, so they're going to be key drivers, I think, over the coming years. Yeah, and,
2: and to add to
0: that, talk to investors as well. Uh,
2: so you've got the corporate disclosure requirements that uh, that also uh, impacts shareholders. So yes, there's a it's a complicated area. <laughs>
1: Yeah, very, very interesting times think it would be very interesting to, to maybe look back on some of the data and metrics. As you say, we're, we're probably in the agency of a lot of, of the items you mentioned and to see how that hybrid working, digital assets, ESG, generational differences, see how all that plays out as we learn more and, and see what the impact will be. And in a look back, it'd be interesting to see that because I uh, Nothing more for me to say but to to thank you, Mark and Paul, very much for sharing so generously your your expertise, your views, all the tips and advice on this topic with us today. Hopefully the team in Old Trafford are listening and we can look forward to Manchester United winning the league. (laughs) Thank you also to the listeners um, of Compliance Files podcast, which was brought to you by the Compliance Institute. I do hope that you found the podcast interesting and useful we would be very grateful if you would review or rate this podcast. Until the next episode. Goodbye.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Compliance Files. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you are listening to ensure you don't miss out on future episodes.